We'll be reading from 1 John 4, verse 7 to 12. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world, that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Well, if you've got your Bibles open, if you need a blue Bible, please feel free to come down and grab one from the table there. Um, we're looking at this short passage in um, the first letter that the Apostle John wrote, 1 John chapter 4. It's on page 1227 in the Blue Bibles. Um, we will be coming back to this letter um, in the springtime. We're going to have a series working through 1 John uh, in the uh, New Year. Um, from the autumn this year, we're going to be looking at the, how the gospel works out in the life of Jacob. So we're going to have a series that's uh, walking through Jacob's life in Genesis, um, and we'll come back to 1 John uh, again in 2023. So this hopefully is a little taster where we can start looking at this issue of love in connection with the fruit of the Spirit. Where do we find love? Um, Ali, if you can flick uh, the slide on that really help. The film Bohemian Rhapsody, which is the biopic for Freddie Mercury's life, showed quite clearly the struggle and search for love. The singer once commented, you can have everything in the world and still be the loneliest person, and this is the most bitter type of loneliness. Success has brought me world idolization and millions of pounds, but it has prevented me from experiencing what we all need, a loving, ongoing relationship. It's a very moving and honest reflection, isn't it? It resonates with the Bible's foundational truth that as people, we were created to know love, to receive love, to give love. Love is primary, because not only do all the other godly characteristics we find that Christ calls us to, flow from it, but it is the essence of God. So let's look further at this short yet powerful passage from the Apostles' letter about the depth of God's love and our response to it. Have a look at verses 7 to 8. I'll read them again. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. So as Christians, we can become, I think, quite complacent because we're used to hearing this. God is love. In fact, I had a phone call with someone, quite peculiar one, which I'll pick up a little bit later. But um, one in which the lady on the end of the line was asking me, do you as a church use the phrase, God is love? And I was like, uh, yeah, we, yes, we do. Do you use the phrase, God is love? Yes, we use that phrase because all Christians use it. It's foundational. It's in the scriptures. In fact, I'm preaching on it on Sunday. God is love. Right. Dot, dot, dot. And the conversation moved on. But I think we can be quite bored and complacent, if we're honest. 
To imagine that God does not love us is actually to deny his very nature. This is one of the unique things about the revelation of Jesus Christ is that throughout the Bible, God is love. In chapter 1, John has already stated that God is light. That is, there's no darkness in him. He is perfect. He is holy. He is true. And here, God is love is just that perfect, holy, unique, unconditional love. It does not depend on anyone or anything else. Light and love are inseparable when you see who God is. When God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34, the Lord proclaims he's the compassionate one, the gracious one, the one to who is slow to anger, abounding in love. And his love is seen in how seriously he takes sin. At the temple dedication, King Solomon and all the people of Israel joined in this song of praise, saying, God, he is good, and his love endures forever in 2 Chronicles 7. God from eternity has always been love before he made anything. This again is a unique point of the Christian faith. God is love, but he was loving before there was anything created to enjoy in that sense. He didn't need love from his creatures. That is because God is dynamic. He's a multi-personal and relational God. The Father, Son, and Spirit is the best revelation and description of how this one God, three persons, exists. Fully divine, distinct in their persons, and yet united by their love for each other. A loving family, a loving community from eternity without start and without end. And this, ins this understanding, this incredible self-giving love of God is so significant to us because the Bible tells us human beings are in his image. So surely the most important aspect of what it means to be human is that we were made for love. Just when you're having chats with friends and they're talking about love, dare to go deep with them. Ask them, why is love so important? Where does it come from? How do you make sense of it? You don't even need to start drawing pictures of the cross and bridge diagrams or six boxes for two ways to live. Just talk about love. Just get them thinking about their own experiences of it as well. Both the pain we have with it, the need for more, the dissatisfaction, because we can see here as well that we look for love in all the wrong places. And our own love is sinful, it's disordered, it's broken. Earlier in the letter, the Apostle John has warned the church, or stated it uh, as fact in chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles open, please flick to it. But in chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, I'll just read it for us. Do not love the world, the Apostle says, or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So John, quite clearly in his letter, is saying there is a counterfeit love. And it's one that doesn't come from our Heavenly Father. It's fundamentally self-centered. It looks for what it can get, and it won't satisfy. Interestingly, even Freddie Mercury would agree. Did you hear the quote? He said his music brought him world 
idolization, not world love. He could see a difference. I don't know where he stood with the Lord, but there we can see a difference. There is a love that God gives, and there's a love that a lot of people settle for, which is not God-given. And this doesn't mean that someone who isn't a Christian cannot show love. Don't hear me say that. In God's goodness, the world is full of people showing and giving sincere love. He doesn't allow the chaos of our selfish desires to rule unchecked. That would be a hellish existence. That is hell. But this human love isn't a sign of genuine spiritual life. We've got to unpick the motivations. We've got to unpick the the goal of that sort of love, how disordered it is. It isn't a sign of genuine spiritual life. The love John has here in view in chapter 4, verse 7, is exclusive, divine, unconditional, agape love that is God-given and God-centered, that comes from being born of God, of knowing him, of accepting him, and believing in his son. So what does that look like? What does that look like then? What is so unique and special about this love? Verses 9 to 10 tell us God's love sacrifices to forgive. Ali, if you could flick on the next slide. Thank you. God's love sacrifices to forgive us. Verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. You see, everyone. Every person instinctively struggles to believe that God really loves us. Do you believe that? That God really loves you? Amen. (laughs) And you know that's the first thing that the enemy loves to attack. No, he doesn't. Why does he want to hear from you? Why should you go to God? God doesn't care. Can you see him? He's not nearby. Look at your life. Look at the things that's gone wrong. Look at the things that are going wrong in the world. God surely doesn't love you. And what do we do? We have to defeat that lie. And we've been given the truth right in front of us, right here. God loves us. Why? We'll see it here. It comes, firstly, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. You see, we by nature turn away from that God's, the God of love. Our instinctive attitude is to doubt him, is to doubt his existence, to challenge his goodness, to disregard what he says. We look for love and pleasure and satisfaction in a whole bunch of other stuff. Just think about this, friends, family, fitness, food, all good things. But they can become ultimate. They can become the things we talk most about, the things we love more. That's disordered. It's good to enjoy those gifts, but don't make them number one. Sun, sex, success. Again, great gifts, but used the right way, not to be the ultimate. We're quite comfortable and happy living our lives on our terms. And yet God, the unconditional loving one, makes the first move towards us. Isn't that amazing? Just right there and there, that God makes the first move. He initiates. He does not love us because we love him. He loves us even though we don't love him, even as his enemies. This is profound. This is not like any other world religion or any other philosophy where what you've got to do is earn it. No, God loves first. 
And it costs God everything. There is nothing more precious to a parent than a child. Nothing. And here, God gave up his son, his only son, even to death. Look at verse 10. He sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Referring to the death of Jesus Christ, God gave up his son unto death. That was the extent of his love for us. That he was willing to give up everything for us. We've sung about it. I know many of you know this and say, this is not new. We'll never move from it. It's not going to be deeper or more profound or something bolted onto it that makes it brand new. It is the newness of this one truth that you go deeper into and have a more profound experience of each day. And when you realize that this death was all about bringing you back to God, how unique, how unconditional, how perfect God's love is, because he cannot tolerate sin, when you see that he is the perfect judge who knows all of us and will judge us for our self-centeredness, our hurt, our disordered loves, saying there's more things to invest in life than you, Lord, for the hurt that that causes him and other people. When we take seriously that judgment... When we see that in the cross, it is a sign of his love that he does not ignore wrongdoing. That hurt and mess in this world will be changed and will be punished for those who have caused it. We see here that the love of God is shown in totality. It says Jesus was the sacrifice of atonement for that sin. He is the problem solver. He is the reconciler. He is the saviour. And that word, that phrase, sacrifice of atonement, really gets to the heart of what Jesus' work was. Dying on the cross, taking the Father's displeasure, his righteous anger at our sin in our place. That is an amazing truth. It is a liberating truth. We have, have a saviour who stood where we sat. And God shouldn't have been angry with Jesus. He was fully God. Fully human, never sinned, innocent, loved people generously, lived the life that we should have lived before God, and willingly took sin on himself. Taking that anger, taking that judgment, experiencing the displeasure of the Father that he had never experienced before. Separating himself, being condemned, so that we would never be condemned, separated, or forsaken by our Father. The cross and resurrection show that extravagant love. There's a gravestone in America, and it's got a simple inscription on it. It says, I want to stand where you're standing. And underneath those words is the lovingly engraved story of an incident that occurred during the Civil War. A soldier who was 19 years old was part of a firing squad assigned to execute a man guilty of treason. As he took aim, he was horrified to see that he knew the man he was about to shoot. He lowered his gun, walked over to the captain and said, I can't do this. The man has a wife and children at home. If I shoot him, I know that I'm not only ending his life, but I end their lives too. I'll make his wife a widow and I'll be robbing the children of their father. I can't do this. And everyone knew the price for treason was death. That price had to be paid. And so they came up with a plan and and agreed that the young soldier could take the condemned man's place. The 19-year-old marched up to the captive and said simply, I want to stand where you're standing. The prisoner took off his blindfold, he walked away back to his family and a fresh start. 
but it was a life that came at a great cost, at a great cost to that young man who gave his place for a rebel. It's a glimpse of what Jesus did, just a glimpse in that sacrificial death on the cross. It wasn't a waste of time, nor was it a defeat. He says to us, Lord and Saviour of all who come to him, I want to stand where you're standing. It's costly. It's dependable. It's that inexhaustible love of God that makes sense of what we're going to build our lives on, what you're going to build your careers on, what the children are going to achieve at school, and what their plans are for the rest of their lives and how that shapes out. Even though they're thinking about what fun can we have in an hour's time in the sunshine. What will we build our future on? This inexhaustible love of God. And it's this love of Jesus that gives each person who accepts it the confidence that to know they will not be abandoned by our God. He is there. But it is a love that's all about action. Paul is clear about that in that list in Galatians 5. The word for love used there is one that's outward looking. It's other centered. But we've got to get the motivation for that right and the resource for that love right first. It flows from God. He is the giver of it. We need to go to him to ask for it before we show it. But this is just quite quickly the final point. God's love is seen in our love for each other. It's so clear. Verses 11 to 12. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. John reiterates this command. You saw it there in a different sort of wording, but the same call to us to do this in verses 7 and 8. They bookend the central bit of the sandwich. It's like two two slices of bread with the main bit in the middle, which is how God has loved us. And the response on either side is, so go and love others. Live in this love, do this love. You see, Jesus expects his sacrifice to make a transforming difference. It's not just head knowledge. And this is what we struggle with as believers. Oh, I know this. Do you? Do we really, are we really prepared to risk it by saying, take this knowledge and make it new? Make it real in our lives? You see, being born of God means he moves into our hearts. He lives within us. As Paul puts it in Galatians, we are now dwelt by the Spirit. We're in step with the Spirit. So in verses 9 to 10, it's interesting that the so there um, of verse 11, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That so takes us back to the details of verses 9 to 10. So one key way of showing love is about forgiveness. It's to forgive others. And the rest of the fruit of the Spirit is a demonstration of love. But let's just have a quick think about forgiving others, okay? I can't do multitasking, so I just need one thing. And the Lord in his patience works with that. Forgiveness. Think about this right now in the church, in your fellowships, with other Christian brothers and sisters. Perhaps you've been hurt by someone. Perhaps that's someone in a life group that you're part of here at Grace Church. Perhaps they're not part of this church, but moved away. Perhaps they're part of an extended family, but they've hurt you. There's pain. There's a need for forgiveness. Maybe it's insensitive comments. Maybe it's actions that have made you feel excluded. What are you going to do about that? 
There's a call here to love, to love as Christ did. And if we're saying that looks like forgiveness, how do we do this? How do we show that love? Start by praying to God the Father for that person. Tell him your hurt. Tell him your anger. Confess it. Confess what they, um, what you firstly may have done wrong in that relationship. Prayerfully say, say it out loud, you forgive them by name. To take that hurt, help me forgive. I forgive them as you have forgiven me. Ask God for the strength to do that. Ask that the Holy Spirit would help you feel and see afresh how much Jesus loves you to know how much he has forgiven you. Pray for that person to be blessed by God. Ask God for the opportunity to show the ways in which you can lovingly help them, lovingly challenge them. Pray for any pain or hurt that they've experienced, whether that's physical or emotional, to be healed as well. Isn't this the first steps of loving one another that lead to action and is action? I was especially challenged about this during the week as I had to respond to the City Council's letter that we received a couple of days ago prosecuting our church about fly tipping, which we haven't done. Uh, Don't get me started. It's taken up hours and hours and hours of my week. Here's the funny thing. I found my anger levels rising and thinking about how incompetent Manchester City Council are trying to blame us for 20 bags of black rubbish in a part of Russia in which we just, we would never dump this stuff. My anger was going up, I was getting more furious, I was putting my lawyer mindset to mind and how can I you know, do this so, like, so solid they can't argue back. And I couldn't help but think the Holy Spirit was nudging me right there and then to see this as a discipleship moment about how to love people. And I'm like, Lord, why are you doing this? I've just got to write a sermon on it. No, because it starts in real life, doesn't it? Even a letter from the council is an opportunity to show love. To show love. How to be gracious and truthful, rather than aggressive and self-righteous and opinionated. How to show care for our neighbours and those in public service who are really under pressure, trying to deliver, but without the resources or help. Rather than dismissing them as busybodies or people that need to put my needs first and see things from my way. All of this, can you see, is such an outworking of love. And we've got to have help from each other to go figure this out this week for a lifetime ahead. So again, as I finish, practically the author, Jerry Bridges, now for myself, Edim, uh, Ben and Dave, who are going to be preaching these uh, sermons looking at the fruit of the Spirit. We've been using Jerry Bridges' book, The Fruitful Life, which is a wonderful resource and I'd recommend that to you. Um, Jerry Bridges helpfully challenges us to turn to 1 Corinthians 13 and use those as motivating statements, that demonstration of love to others. And going back to what Alina said about writing cards down for prayer, this would be a fantastic first step exercise of just write out a bit of 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 to 7 and change it around this way as you pray. So Jerry suggests... Actually praying and and saying this, committing this to mind, to to think through the situations you're in. He says, start with these phrases. I am patient with you because I love you. 
and want to forgive you as Jesus is patient with me and forgiven me. Can you see how that changes it? I am kind to you because I love you and I want to help you as Jesus shows eternal kindness and help to me. I do not want to boast about my attainments because I love you. I want to hear about yours, knowing I'm secure in Jesus' approval for me. I am not easily angered by you because I love you and want to overlook your offences as Jesus, who has every right to be angry with me, shows mercy, not anger. He does not count my sin against me. Can you see, if you start praying and thinking like that, it will lead to changed action. It will lead to changed character. Jesus wants you and I to experience more of his love by sharing it. So as a church, let's pray that we would put that love on display like a masterpiece in the National Gallery. Not to boast, not for people to look at us at all, but to actually see the master artist, the one we want people to fall in love with, the Lord God, Father, Son and Spirit, who first loved us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, one simple prayer, Lord, by your Spirit, help us to know every day that you first loved us, that you have done it all, that Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection is all we truly need. And may that love transform us. I pray that for the children in the crash area, that they, I, they won't have processed much of today. But I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would awaken in them a deep love for Jesus Christ and his love for them. And for all of us at whatever life stage we're in, Lord, would you bring us to trust more deeply your saving love and be prepared, be willing to live it out day by day, step by step, depending on your spirit. For the glory of your name. Amen.